Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. Straight ahead on the program, more bank earnings, and there could be some surprises. I'm Doug Krisner. After three decades of deflation in Japan, we look at the flip side, inflation. I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington, where the Senate Judiciary Committee is getting set to vote on a Supreme Court ethics bill. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. We're looking ahead to the general election in Spain and the challenges facing Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. I'm Amy Morris in Washington. We spent most of the past week focusing on inflation and the economy, but now we're turning our attention to bank earnings with the kickoff of the second quarter reporting season. Joining me now to talk about all of this is Allison Williams. She's our global senior bank analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Allison, it has been quite a week. We had J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citigroup reporting, as we've been talking about. And there's uh, we've been waiting now on the next wave. Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Charles Schwab will be reporting on Tuesday. Goldman Sachs, M&T Bank, U.S. Bank Corp., and others on Wednesday. Let's start with J.P. Morgan. That was some record revenue. Just your initial reaction. So it was a very strong quarter at J.P. Morgan, especially the return on tangible equity of 25%. Very impressive. And a few things happening there. First of all, the net interest income coming in much better than expected, and the bank increasing their guidance for the year. So that we think that's going to fuel higher revenue and EPS estimates. And in fact, we did get um, relatively resilient net interest income across J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup. Wells Fargo also raising their net interest income guidance, whereas um, Citigroup has some offsets um, from weaker fee income. But uh, again, focusing on J.P. Morgan, they are they have better than expected revenue. Um, they're uh, trading and fees uh, coming in a little bit better than expected, and also on the costs stable. Lastly, on the provision side of things, they are uh, taking reserves. A lot of that has to do with car growth. That's been a contributor to the net interest income line. And um, again, that's something that we're seeing across the bank. How much of this is impacted by those regional bank failures? And what I mean is the absorption or being able to merge with them. Has that proven to be a good deal, particularly I'm thinking with First Republic? So, JP Morgan. Um, 
you know, certainly is seeing the benefit of that deal. But I would say that some of the industry uh, dynamics that uh, came into play in March and perhaps early April have really stabilized in terms of we are seeing deposits migrate into higher yielding alternatives, but I think not at a pace that investors had fears. So um, a migration and not a flight, I would say, with regard to deposits. And so as the cost of those deposits are rising, uh, but perhaps not as great as feared, that's also aiding the net interest income line for these banks. Now, I was reading on the Bloomberg Terminal about trading and investment banking had actually been down from a year ago, but still came in ahead of analysts' expectations. What would be driving all of this, or is there any one thing driving it? So when you look at the trading and fees, um, they are both down, but it is a little bit of a tale of of two cities because trading is normalizing in a historically higher range, whereas investment banking fees are normalizing in a a weaker range, similar to pre-pandemic levels. On the trading side of things, Fixed income trading um, is really uh, the story this year, but also last year as well. There's a benefit from interest rate volatility. Um, what we're also seeing in in this year is credit trading improving. Credit trading was very weak last year, so to some extent, uh, you know, when we look at the comparisons, they are easier. Um, but we also did have some um, pretty good high yield uh, issuance growth. Um, That helps uh, the secondary volumes a little bit. The other thing that we're seeing on on the just moving to the fee side of things, so high yield issuance growth is helpful. Um, Equity underwriting also seeing some green shoots there, so some some good growth off very weak levels. But the M and A headwind is really overwhelming there. M and A continued to be very strong last year, and now we're seeing uh, that weakness and that uh, turning to um, a headwind. And so the other trend we're seeing at banks is that they're starting to right-size their staffing to these weaker levels. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that a little bit, because when you talk about them right-sizing their staffing, the flip side of that coin, another way of interpreting that is they're letting people go. And maybe that bodes poorly for the future. But it sounds like, just from what you've said, this is a trend that's a very strong trend and that we can expect more growth. Well, the, the strength is really on on the trading side of things, and again, we're just looking at sort of historically high things, you know, normalizing in a historically high range there. So, it is a little bit um, soft and down compared to last year, but it's not the same weakness that we're seeing on the investment banking fee side, and. It perhaps isn't so much a statement about things getting worse on investment banking fees, but more that staffing levels are are kind of coming to the reality that we've seen over the last several quarters. Keep in mind that 2021 was a record year for equities, for M&A. It was very strong. The banks were scrambling for headcount, um, especially the hiring of junior bankers. And you recall the stories about um, pay for junior bankers mm-hmm. um, happening at that time. So when we saw fees basically get cut in half last year, the banks were really hesitant to 
um, reduce their staffing to meet those lower levels. They had, were holding out hope that things would really pick up um, in 2023. And as of the first half, that really has not happened. As I said, we saw some, we've seen some green shoots, um, but not to the level of optimism that the banks have expected. And so it's really kind of coming to, um, as I said, the reality of, of those lower levels. And, you know, there's some hope for the second half, but really banks and the M&A boutiques are really talking more about 2024 at this point. And we are talking with Allison Williams with Bloomberg Intelligence about bank earnings. Uh, I want to shift gears just a little bit, talking about Bank of America, often seen as a bellwether, partly because of who its clients are, small business accounts making up the backbone of the U.S. economy, and so many consumer clients as well. As we watch what that bank says, what should we be looking for if we are trying to gauge the direction of the economy or the health or the trends of the banking industry? So as you said, they they are bellwether, and we will be looking across their businesses and their client base. But I think the commercial and industrial lending side, um, you know, we may see some weakness there. Um, the bank has talked about the fact that utilization rates of their commercial lines had been improving. Um, that means that companies are, are drawing down on those lines. But that has sort of stabilized. And if we look at the industry data, we did see that commercial and industrial loans was the area of weakness sort of flattish loans overall. So Bank of America will also benefit from the credit card side of things that we're seeing um, from uh, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, uh, and Wells Fargo, but they will see that offset in terms of the the commercial industrial loans. We'll also be looking at the uh, the wealth business for Bank of America. Um, That's a very significant uh, business for them, and we're going to be watching for the deposit costs, the wealth business is one of the more sensitive businesses in terms of the rising cost of deposits. Um, but there is a potential that we could see things, um, again, leveling out and perhaps those costs um, rising a little bit less than feared after some of the increases that we saw last quarter. Let's shift gears again. Uh, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, those are going to be coming up. Deal-making important for them. There have been those job cuts that we've already touched on. Anything particular that you're going to be watching for, what we may be expecting from them? So for Goldman Sachs, they, um, as, as you point out, that the fees are weak. Um, M&A fees, uh, on the M&A side of things, they are always by far the revenue leader. And so that represents not just their ranking within the M&A league tables, but also the fact that they uh, tend to be the lead um, advisor on more profitable deals. As I said, that's a headwind. So they will be feeling that headwind. Um, They are also likely to see some some of the benefit of the green shoots on the equity side of things. But I think that the bank has uh, definitely flagged uh, a few things to watch out for. We are going to likely see more impairments on some of their um, real estate. Uh, that was a, that was a drag last quarter. We're going to continue to see that a drag this quarter. And we're going to watch it with you, Allison. Thank you so much for this insight. We are looking forward to those earnings coming up in the week ahead. Allison Williams, a global senior bank analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Now, coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. We are on Inflation Watch when it comes to Japan. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg.
The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Amy Morris in Washington. Up later in our program, lawmakers are considering new ethics rules for the Supreme Court. But how much authority does Congress have? But first, investors are watching for more signs of inflation in Asia. We're watching for key data from Japan this coming week. And for more, we go to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Doug Krisner. Doug. Amy, perhaps no other major economy in the world has had to deal with the deflation problem like Japan. It's persisted for three decades. But within the last year, price pressures have been building, and it's creating a unique challenge for the Bank of Japan. Joining me now for a closer look is Bloomberg's Paul Jackson. He is based in Tokyo, and he covers the governments and economies of both Japan and South Korea. Paul, it's a pleasure to have you here, and I'm going to begin with the inflation data that we are expecting in the coming week. Just fill us in on what the markets are forecasting right now and what economists are saying. Well, I think we're expecting CPI to stay firm around 3.2% for June. Now, that might not sound that high by international standards, but uh, for Japan, after all these decades of deflation, that is high, and it's been above 2% since April 2022. Uh, so people are asking, you know, just when is the BOJ going to change policy? You know, we're seeing a lot of data that suggests that finally we are close to some kind of movement in this uh, price trend that has been so sluggish over the years. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, BOJ uh, survey on household expectations that households are expecting prices to go up at a faster rate. Uh, we saw wage growth, which the Bank of Japan has been saying is very important mm. to ensure that prices continue rising. We saw gains of 2.5% in, in the uh, most recent data, although you know there's lots of complications to unpick that data and suggest it's volatile and can't be totally relied upon. But still, it's a sign that things are, are bubbling up and that uh, the time for uh, the BOJ to consider policy change uh, is coming uh, upon us. And we do have a meeting uh, coming up uh, later this month, Mm -hmm. which uh, economists surveyed by Bloomberg last month said was the most likely meeting for any uh, near-term tweaks 
to uh, BOJ policy. I'm wondering whether there is anyone that is concerned about the time that the BOJ is taking. I mean, you can understand from Ueda's point of view or any other BOJ governor, if you've been in a deflationary environment for three decades, you want to be very confident that inflation has reemerged. But I'm wondering whether or not anyone is saying this is a dangerous exercise to keep monetary policy so accommodated for so long. Uh, well, of course, there's been a, a lot of uh, criticism of uh, Japan's uh, addiction to keeping stimulus rolling uh, when the rest of the world is raising rates and trying to really tackle inflation. But I think, uh, uh, Doug, you've, you've honed in on the point. You know, Japan's been in deflation for decades. So, uh, you know, Japan doesn't want to stuff it up <laughs> under the new governor, Ueda. Uh, remember that uh, Ueda was on the board back in the early 2000s when Japan prematurely raised interest rates and then fell back into deflation shortly afterwards. And at that time, Ueda dissented from that decision. He said, we are moving too early. So this is a guy who does not want to see that happen again under his watch. So he's turned out to be a little bit more cautious than we expected. So that points to a big change in BOJ policy coming later. The question is, will the BOJ do some kind of stopgap measure to make its uh, stimulus more sustainable in the meantime? And that takes us to its control of the yield curve mm. and potential change for that in July. What about it changing the inflation forecast? Is that something that the BOJ could use also to kind of help the market understand what its intentions are? Well, that's a very good point because Kazuo Ueda uh, is uh, an economist, spent his all his career uh, as an economist. So he wants to have uh, you know data, evidence to draw upon for change. Now, I think everyone is expecting the BOJ to raise its uh, inflation forecast for this year because currently it says it's only going to average 1.8%. Now, how is that possible when we're already, you know, we're still at 3.2%? Mm. So I think everyone thinks it's going to go above 2% for this year. But the thing is, is the BOJ needs to see inflation staying above 2% for a period of time, like, you know, the next two or three years, that's when the stars are aligned for big change. The other thing that I'm wondering about is I look at the yen over the last week strengthened tremendously against the dollar, how mm -hmm. this would affect uh, the BOJ's thinking. What do you what do you think about that? Well, of course, there's been a lot of, you know, uh, worry and concern about uh, the yen going too weak and the possibility of intervention. And then since we've seen this strengthening, obviously, the, the U.S. Uh, uh, CPI uh, figures cooling has, has helped that. But if you look at the differentials between 10-year yields and uh, put that against where the dollar yen is, that the yen is definitely out of sync with where it should be on that chart. It is a little bit stronger uh, than it should be. So that suggests in markets there's a little bit of uneasiness about this July meeting. And uh, they're not wanting to bet that the BOJ will just do nothing. They want to be in a better position in case uh, there is change. 
I would just caution that if we really had people betting on change happening, we would be seeing uh, the BOJ having to buy bonds at its fixed rate operations uh, each day. We're still not quite there yet, although yields are very close to its 0.5% cap. Isn't the BOJ somewhat trapped by the current structure of the economy in Japan? And I'm kind of opening up the conversation to include declining birth rates and aging population. So there, there are certain structural variables that really have not shifted, and that's only made the job a lot more difficult. Well, it's true. I mean, in terms of the uh, demographics uh, of Japan, things are not working in favor of like uh, a very vigorous, uh, uh, aggressively growing uh, economy. Maybe at some point, Japanese policymakers just have to understand and accept that Japan's economy, uh, like you know, mature economies across the world, has to accept uh, lower levels of growth, and that Japan's levels of growth maybe need to be at the lower end of the scale in uh, uh, the G7. One of the things that I think has been critical for igniting or let's say reigniting inflation in Japan has been the wage component. That was a long time coming. Is this being celebrated now as a major pivotal point? Well, I think there's still a little bit of doubt and suspicion as to whether this will continue. Now, uh, obviously, if you've got prices going up, it's a lot easier for uh, unions and workers to demand more pay and a lot easier for executives to uh, offer uh, more pay and explain it to their uh, shareholders. So we've got a bit of a chicken and egg thing here. Uh, we need the prices to go up to justify the wages. But then the Bank of Japan saying you need the wages going up to push up the prices. So we've talked a lot about the macro in Japan. Tell me how this intersects with the current political environment. Well, in terms of the current political environment, we were expecting an early election with uh, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida taking advantage of uh, an uptick in popularity ratings. However, uh, things have uh, turned in the other direction in the last uh, uh, few weeks. Uh, he's got a problem with uh, an identification number scheme uh, that the government's been trying to roll out. It's got all kinds of technical problems. And uh, this has led to a, a drop in his popularity. And so this means the likelihood of an early election, certainly over the summer, has totally gone. Even in the autumn, it's looking far more doubtful. And what this means is the BOJ doesn't have to worry about getting in the way of election or ruffling markets because there's an election going away. That factor is now taken out of the equation. And so uh, investors, I think, should be a little bit more on guard for some kind of stopgap measure for the BOJ uh, at this coming meeting. Paul, thank you so much for being with us. Bloomberg's Paul Jackson. He covers the governments and economies of Japan and South Korea. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself weekdays for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Amy? Thank you, Doug. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, Senate Democrats are pushing for a set of ethics rules for Supreme Court justices. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm Amy Morris in Washington with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Senate Democrats are pushing for a law that would essentially set a new code of conduct for the Supreme Court. That's after a string of controversies related to the high court. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound on co-host Kaylee Lines. Kaylee. That's right, Amy. The Senate Judiciary Committee, led by Democratic Chairman Senator Dick Durbin, will vote this coming Thursday on a bill that would require Supreme Court justices to adopt a code of conduct. Let's first remind ourselves of the reason why this push is happening, or reasons, perhaps. Joining me now is Greg Storr, who covers the high court for us here at Bloomberg. So, Greg, just to start, can you just give us a brief recap about all of the perhaps ethically questionable information that has come to light about certain justices in recent months? Yeah, there's a growing list. And for all we know, the list may get longer by the time that they, they hold this vote. Uh, the biggest stories had to do with Justice Clarence Thomas accepting luxury travel over the course of a couple decades from a Republican mega donor, a guy named Harlan Crow. Uh, there's been another revelation that Justice Sam Alito took a trip uh, that was also uh, funded by Republican donors. A new story out uh, by the Associated Press involving Justice Sonia Sotomayor using her staff members to, in, when she would go out on, on speeches, to uh, encourage uh, the venues to acquire her book, books so that people, she could sign them for people. So there's a, a kind of a panoply of things, and, and I'm really just kind of scraping the surface here. Well, and that, of course, is on both sides, right? Conservative-leaning justices as well as those on the other end, which raises the question about what ethics checks really exist for the court now. We've kind of learned that there aren't many, right? Yeah, they are not bound by any code of conduct. They say they follow the code of conduct that applies to lower court judges. 
but there's really no mechanism for enforcing it. And that is part of the problem here that when there are these stories that come out and you know people are complaining about them, there's no place for them really to turn where an independent uh, entity will look at them and say, either you did or did not violate the ethics rules. So that brings us to this legislation, this bill that the Judiciary Committee is set to vote on this coming week. What is it trying to accomplish? It's trying to require the court, as you said at the beginning, to uh, put in place a, a code. It's not imposing one from the outside because it is uh, the idea by, by the, the Democratic senators who are pushing it is that you know the court would know best about exactly how to craft it and they don't want to be too intrusive, they say. But it would require the court to have new, have clearer uh, disclosure rules, clearer uh, um, uh, rules about conflicts of interest, and it would set up an enforcement me- mechanism involving lower court judges so that if there were a complaint, there would be somebody to review that. So I guess really this is more about avoiding ethics conflicts in the future than the ones of the past that we now know about, right? Is that a fair characterization? It, it mostly is. Uh, you know, it remains to be seen um, how exactly this might apply to past things. You know, somebody could per- perhaps, you know, file a complaint having to do with something that, that mm-hmm. happened in the past. And of course, this is just legislation, right. uh, an awful lot of hurdles, including the, the filibuster in the Senate and the fact that the House is controlled by Republicans. Well, that's what I was going to ask next. Is this something that it seems like it's going to get bipartisan support? Uh, at this point, no. You know, Republicans have have generally uh, said that these uh, complaints about the, the the Supreme Court, which are mostly geared towards the more conservative justices, uh, Republicans have gen- generally sort of said uh, this is you know basically a proxy for complaints about the court's output. And the court, of course, has had a number, both this term and last term, a number of very big, very conservative decisions. Uh, so it does not, at this point, look as though there's going to be enough Republican support to to get it over the finish line. Uh, I want to come back to the the perhaps controversial decisions that have been made in the last several months and what that has done to the court's standing on, on the part of the American public. But first, if I could just ask you one last question around what's happening on the Capitol Hill side. It's worth noting that the Judiciary Committee isn't just trying to you know, vote on this legislation. They've also been seeking information. They asked Harlan Crow, who you mentioned, the billionaire uh, involved with the Clarence uh, Thomas dealings that had been spotlighted. They've asked him for information. He has refused to cooperate. And I believe they've had outreach toward uh, Chief Justice John Roberts as well. And these efforts haven't necessarily been fruitful. Right. Uh, Dick Durbin, who's the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, invited John Roberts to testify. Uh, the Chief Justice declined uh, in, in, in a letter that really didn't even sort of acknowledge there was an issue here. The court did put out this statement of ethical principles that they say they, they follow, but that didn't go nearly as far as, as critics of the court want to. Uh, so far, the court has not not been willing to engage much on these issues. And, you know, one question here is the court has also never acknowledged that Congress has a constitutional right to impose any sorts of ethical requirements mm. on them. So even if this legislation were to go forward, it's not clear that the Supreme Court would necessarily accept it as something that's binding on them. So the court could rule about itself almost? It, it could rule or it could just say, and of course these are nine individuals, right. uh, say uh, I or we are not going to abide by this. 
you know, one of the issues that John Roberts has over at the court is, um, you know, imposing a putting in place a code of conduct uh, isn't necessarily something that can be done on a five to four or six to three vote like mm-hmm. like other things that the court does. It's the kind of thing that uh, probably requires buy in from everybody since you're going to expect everybody to abide by it. So that will be a hurdle that that you know the court the court has to deal with. Well, especially if some of the justices that would need to sign it on are the ones that have been in the spotlight for some of these ethics issues and could fear potential repercussions. So if we could just bring this around more broadly to kind of what you were suggesting about some of the decisions they've been made and just the issue of trust in the court or faith in the Supreme Court. Where is it standing in America right now? Uh, pretty darn low, uh, at or near record record lows. And that is especially among Democrats because, of course, Democrats are the ones more likely to be unhappy with how the, the court has been ruling. You know, and, and, you know, exactly what is causing that, you know, the questions don't always get into that. Um, undoubtedly, some of it is because of the court's rulings. Undoubtedly, some of it is because of the the way Republicans, both in the White House and the Senate, have uh, managed to get to get their nominees on the court. Uh, of course, the, the you know, the well-documented Mitch McConnell's holding open of that seat before the the election that elected Donald Trump, the mm-hmm. rush to get Amy Coney Barrett confirmed before the last presidential election. Uh, and then we have all these ethics issues on top of that. And, uh, you, you know, it, it's a time where more and more people are saying, I don't have confidence in this court. So aside from, you know, just this legislation around the code of conduct, it raises a question of whether or not we're going to have a more serious conversation about reform to the court in some way or another, whether or not that means expanding it, which always isn't a politically popular idea or or something else. We'll continue to have that conversation, I'm sure. But the political reality is uh, it's not likely to happen anytime soon. Uh, even if Democrats, like even if Joe Biden were to wholeheartedly, you know, get on board saying, I want to expand the Supreme Court or I want to impose term limits, uh, these are things that at a minimum would require legislation that requires, uh, you know, has all the, the congressional hurdles that we talked about earlier. Um, and to the extent, and I think to a large extent this is happening, the Supreme Court is being looked at, looked upon as kind of a zero-sum game, as an extension of the, the, the political process. A lot of Republicans are very happy with what the court's been doing on abortion affirmative action. You know, mm-hmm. you go down the list. All right. So a lot of cases to look forward to. And of course, Greg Storr is going to have them all covered for us, our wonderful Supreme Court reporter here at Bloomberg. And Amy, we'll send it back to you. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays from 1 until 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, some big elections are coming up in Spain. We'll tell you why we're watching so closely. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Amy Morris in Washington. Spain's political parties are heading into the final week of campaigning ahead of the general election next weekend. Outgoing Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez is seeking re-election for his Socialist Party, but he faces strong opposition from the Conservative People's Party. 
For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. This is a snap summer election called by Pedro Sanchez after a poor showing for the Socialist Party in local and regional elections in May. The Conservative People's Party won seven of the 12 regions that were up for grabs in that vote. They're also leading in polls heading into this election as well. For more, let's bring in Bloomberg's Madrid Bureau Chief Rodrigo Orejuela. Rodrigo, what was Pedro Sanchez's strategy in calling this election now in the height of summer? The strategy was basically that he tried to put an end to the momentum the PP was going to to get if he waited for six more months. They already had the momentum from winning the, the election in May, and his main concern was that if he stayed in power for six more months with them celebrating all along those six, six months, he was going to become a bit of a what Americans would call a lame duck. Uh, even though you know it's not technically the same, but that was kind of the impression. And also, um, in Spain, you have to focus on the two main parties, but also on the two the junior parties on each side of what we call the right and left blocks. And on on the left of, of Pedro Sanchez and the Socialists, there is a key partner for him, which is his junior partner in government. And they were melting down and having a breakdown. And so by basically calling a snap election, he was also telling them, pull your act together and, you know, start start campaigning because the election is around the corner. What are the issues that have dominated this campaign so far? The one issue that Pedro Sanchez was betting on uh, dominating the campaign in his favour was the economy because the Spanish economy has recovered in quite impressive form from the COVID crisis. It has right now the lowest inflation rate in Europe and probably the highest um, GDP growth rate. Uh, however, this has not benefited him in any way. It didn't benefit him in the in the May election, and it's not benefiting him now. Uh, everybody seems to be focused on other issues. The main one is the endless topic of regional nationalisms in Spain. So his proximity to Catalan and Basque um, independent, uh, secessionists has become a big, big point of attack for the right. And the other issue that is dominating at a, uh, at a little a slightly lower level are local cultural wars. Well, let's talk about the main challenger then to Pedro Sanchez. This is the leader of the People's Party, Alberto Núñez Feijo. He's the key figure to watch in this election. What do we know about him? The PP has traditionally been a broad church for the right. They included everything from centrist liberals to extreme right conservatives. And Feijo has always been rather ambiguous in, in where he stands. But the general consensus is that he is more towards the center than to the extreme right. Um, so, but he can also play to both to both extremes. That that is the the his strongest strength. He ruled his region, which is Galicia, in the northwest for twelve years. And as years went by, he gained more and more power and clout over the region. Uh, he was quiet. He was rather protected and shielded from some of the scrutiny that you get from the national um, stage. There's not much of a critical media establishment in Galicia. He didn't have much of an opposition. And interestingly enough, he also managed 
to put to bed the local nationalist movement, regional nationalist movement, which was the pro-Galician independence movement. He has been quite skillful at, at keeping them at bay. OK, well, it sounds like a very interesting last week of campaigning there in Spain ahead of the vote on the 23rd uh, of July. Thank you so much to Bloomberg's Rodrigo Orejuela in Madrid there. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. Thank you, Stephen. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Amy Morris. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.